0: Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we'll cover the latest rebel advance in Myanmar. What threat does it pose, the military junta? This is a fight that Myanmar's ruling military junta didn't see coming. These soldiers are part of what's known as the Three Brotherhood Alliance. A coalition of different ethnic armed groups who are now stretching Myanmar's ruling military forces across multiple fronts. In the last few weeks, they claim to have taken town after town in the north of the country, releasing videos showing their apparent progress as they claim control of key military outposts, weapons and capture territory they believe belongs to them. Back in February 2021, military leaders in Myanmar seized power. That triggered massive demonstrations in cities and towns across the country. Those protests met fierce repression by the junta. They morphed into resistance, militias, fighting the regime in different parts of the country, including in the heartlands of Myanmar's Burma majority, areas that hadn't really seen fighting before. Since the coup, violence has displaced some two million people. As the war spread, Myanmar's so-called ethnic armed groups, Big rebel forces that have been struggling against the army for decades, in many cases controlled parts of the country's highlands. They sometimes helped the new resistance forces that emerged after the coup by supplying weapons, training them, sheltering their leaders. But many of the big ethnic armed groups sat out direct fighting with the regime. Over the past few weeks, that's changed. An alliance of three groups, the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, or MNDAA, the Tang National Liberation Army, TNLA, and the Arakan Army routed the army from parts of Shan State in Myanmar's east. They seized towns, cut important trade routes to China, and overran dozens of military outposts. Elsewhere too, the army faced renewed attacks by both ethnic armed groups and resistance forces. China has traditionally had close ties to some Myanmar rebels, particularly those in the east, Here's China's foreign ministry spokesperson talking about the violence. China is paying close attention to the conflict in northern Myanmar and urges all parties to immediately cease fire and persist in resolving differences through peaceful means, avoid escalation of the situation, and take practical measures to ensure the security of the China Myanmar border. But despite the statements of concern, Beijing thus far has done little to rein in the fighting. So how grave a threat does this rebel offensive pose the junta? Could the disparate forces fighting the regime unite under a single command? And how does China view what's happening along its border with Myanmar? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the podcast Richard Horsey, Crisis Group's Myanmar expert. Richard, welcome back on.
1: Great to be back, Richard.
0: So I should start by saying that if people want more background to what's happened in Myanmar since the coup in February 2021, I really suggest you listen to the last episode on which Richard appeared. I think it was last May, and that gives a lot of background to the coup and to sort of what's happened since. We're going to focus today mostly on the recent escalation, what it means for Myanmar. So Richard, perhaps let's start. What has the fighting over the last few weeks entailed?
1: So on the 27th of October, three ethnic armed groups who call themselves the Three Brotherhood Alliance, they launched coordinated attacks across the northern part of Shan State. That's up on the border with China. And they, had a series of very rapid and quite significant successes. They were able to sever the main trade routes to China, very important for a large amount of overland trade. They were able to seize a number of towns and dozens of military bases, including some large bases where they captured, you know, armor and multiple launch uh, rocket systems and artillery pieces. So this was, you know, quite surprising I think to many people the speed with which this offensive proceeded and the extent to which regime forces kind of had to withdraw or give up those quite significant positions. And as time has gone on, you know, we're weeks into this now, the regime hasn't so far been able to mount any decisive, credible counterattack in those areas. And so, you know, that's kind of convinced many people across the country that this is a moment of historic weakness for the Myanmar military, and a moment of extreme vulnerability uh, for the regime.
0: So will talk a bit later about the resistance that the Myanmar Junta, the regime, faces in other parts of the country. But maybe first, let's stick with Shan State, so this big area in the east of Myanmar, along the China-Laos border. So, as we heard up top, there are three groups in the Brotherhood Alliance that you talked about. The Arakan Army is one. Their heartlands are sort of in Rakhine State in the west. But the two other groups, the Tang National Liberation Army, so the TNLA, And the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, so the MNDAA, they're very much from Shan State, control territory in Shan State. So what do they hope to get out of this latest fighting?
1: So the MNDAA, the Kokang armed group, uh, has been attempting since 2009 to retake territory, the Kokang self-administered zone on the Chinese border. The MNDAA was kicked out by the Myanmar military and a rival Kokang faction uh, all those years ago, and uh, since then it's been operating as an insurgency in the hills with kind of rear logistical support operations in China, and you know now it's launched this offensive with the stated aim of taking back that territory, uh, but they're also saying you know they want to contribute more broadly to the revolution that's taking place in Myanmar now the cocaine group hasn't been really involved in the post coup conflict but it has been training and providing or selling some weapons to some of those groups who have taken up arms uh, since the coup so it's played a kind of shadow role but not a significant active role in this so far but you know when it was so successful at routing uh, the myanmar military Many people across the country and the resistance forces were extremely motivated by this and, you know, really see this as a great win for the resistance, a big blow to the Myanmar military. And they were very heartened to see uh, in the initial statement that this alliance put out that it had mentioned, you know, the common aim of the Myanmar populace of overturning the coup. Uh, Now, whether that is a significant aim of the uh, MNDA or not is another question, but I think it's created a lot of excitement and a lot of hope in Myanmar right now.
0: And what about the other big ethnic armed group, the Tang National Liberation Army? What's it trying to get from the fighting?
1: So the TNLA, the Tang group, has been Trying since the coup really to consolidate its hold over the Ta'ang homeland several townships in northern Shan state which are majority Ta'ang population so there's been an uptick in fighting this year between them and the Myanmar military as they've tried to consolidate their military hold, expand that territory into neighboring areas. And now uh, they see a prospect, along with the MNDAA and the Arakan Army, who are fighting together in this northern Shan State arena, they see a chance of connecting that Ta'ang homeland to the Chinese border. And that's really important for them, because although it's not a traditional majority Ta'ang area, that border with China is really important for their area to be politically and economically uh, sustainable.
0: What about the third member of the Brotherhood Alliance, the Arakan Army? It's a bit different, right, in the sense that its sort of ethnic stronghold is Rahein State, other side of the country, rather than in Shan State, where the offensive took place. So what's motivating the Arakan Army to sort of take part in the offensive?
1: So the Arakan army was actually founded in Kachin state in the east up on the China border in the late 2000s. That's where its leadership still is along that border in different enclaves controlled by opposition armed groups. So it has its origins in that part of the country but Most of its fighters and most of its operations are focused on its homeland of Rakhine State on the Bangladesh border. So the Arakan army has maintained forces in both places, uh, and it's continued to be a part of this three-brotherhood alliance in northern Shan State. It's important for the Arakan army. It's not just that their leadership is up uh, in that general area. But also, they have a lot of economic interests in that area, and it's critical for their supply of arms and ammunition and other material, most of which comes uh, indirectly from China or, or via those other ethnic armed groups up on the Chinese border. So without that, they wouldn't have a ready access to the weapons and the ammunition they need, and so they place a high importance on being sustainably located both in Rakhine State and uh, up in northern uh, Shan as well.
0: And there has also been fighting in Rakhine state, which already the Arakan army controls much of the state. There's been this sort of uneasy ceasefire with the junta for some time, but now fighting's restarted, so opening up another front with the military.
1: So what's been really interesting about Operation 1027 in Northern Shan, and part of the reason it's generated such a degree of hope, I think, from the resistance forces, is this kind of chain reaction that we've witnessed, that after those three groups initially launched their uh, operation and demonstrated how easily they could take territory and bases off the Myanmar military. You know, many other groups who've been uh, observing this have taken it as a sign of great regime weakness uh, and therefore seen it as the right moment to also go on the offensive. And the Arakan army who's been involved in that fighting in the east a few days later ended the informal ceasefire in Rakhine State that's been there for about a year and went on the offensive again there as well. It's still too early to say how extensive that offensive and how long-lasting it will be, whether this is the beginning of war in Rakhine State again, as we saw a few years ago, a very, very intense conflict there with huge civilian implications. Uh, it's a little bit early to say, but the Arakan army, I think, is testing the strength and resolve of the Myanmar military in Rakhine State. They've taken uh, and then had to withdraw from one town, They've taken over maybe six, eight significant bases of the army and the border guard police up on the Bangladesh border this will be very significant, how this fighting evolves and the capacity of the Myanmar military to respond in Rakhine State. Because if it's weak in Rakhine State, and if the Arakan army feels it's also pushing against an open door, I think that's going to be a sign that, okay, Northern Shan was not a special situation. It's something deeper. Whereas if the Arakan army really faces a lot of difficulties in its new offensives, I think that may give some resistance forces some pause to think, okay, Maybe the regime and the military isn't uniformly weak, and we maybe have to reassess
0: things. And again, we'll come in a moment to the resistance forces, these forces that emerged out of the protests against the February 2021 coup. But the three groups that are part of the Brotherhood Alliance, so Arakan Army, TNLA, MNDAA, as we talked about, they hadn't really been involved in the fighting after the coup between the army and these resistance forces. They've sort of taken a back seat in some cases, as you said. They've armed resistance forces, provided their leaders shelter, but not really got more involved. So why escalate against the military now? What explains the change in calculation?
1: So you're right. These three groups have not been you know, at the vanguard of the armed resistance after the coup. Uh, they have been preparing a lot, as you say. They've been training and arming. Uh, post-coup resistance forces, they've been making their own preparations. The operation that we uh, saw at the end of October, starting in the end of October in uh, northern Shan, this didn't uh, just happen overnight. That clearly had months and months of preparation and stockpiling of uh, arms and ammunition. And uh, a lot of drones were used as well, very large number of, of, of attack drones, as well as reconnaissance drones, uh, which has been a new feature of warfare uh, in Myanmar since the coup. So uh, there's certainly an element to which these groups have been prepared. Preparing, waiting for the right moment, and getting ready to fight. Uh, whether that was a fight of their choice or one that was imposed upon them, they've seen that it's necessary to prepare. It's also the start of the dry season in Myanmar, uh, which is when it's easier to go on the offensive, and if you're moving around, uh, you don't want to be doing it in the rains. Uh, defending in the rains is better, attacking in the dry season is uh, advantageous. So I think there's a, a factor there as well. But also, uh, these groups, and particularly the Kokang armed group, the MNDAA, have been observing China's battle against scam centres and have seen the level of frustration in Beijing at the regime's lack of action and at the lack of action of the regime's ally in Kokang, this border guard force that's been controlling that area. And I think they've seen that as an opportunity as well because traditionally China is very averse to fighting on its border. It doesn't relish the prospect of refugees crossing the border. It doesn't want fighting crossing the border and affecting uh, Chinese citizens. And so normally it intervenes to tell both uh, the Myanmar military and uh, opposition armed groups that, No fighting at all is better, but if you must fight, keep it away from the Chinese border. But I think these groups saw an opportunity now with China's frustration, and they pitched, actually, the offensive in Kokang as a way to help China crack down on scam centres. And, you know, China has said publicly it wants a ceasefire and an end to the fighting. But really, it hasn't done anything significant in practical terms to bring that about. And so there's a real sense that China is sitting on the sidelines watching this unfold and is given at least a tacit, if not an active uh, nod to the fighting that we're witnessing.
0: We'll talk in a moment a bit more about sort of China's Myanmar policy writ large. But Richard, could you just say, why is Beijing so worried about the call scam centres? So these scam centers
1: started really growing uh, over COVID when there were a lot of uh, migrant workers who were trapped, who couldn't get to their jobs, when economic activity uh, subsided across the board in the region. And, you know, a lot of these people were kind of white-collar workers, professionals, IT people. Uh, And I think that the criminal syndicates saw an opportunity. They were also unable to carry out some of their uh, normal activities, you know, In-person gambling wasn't possible, borders were closed. Uh, And so they started really building up and professionalizing these scam operations. And some of them, not all of these centers, use workers who've been tricked into coming there offered legitimate jobs, but then have their travel documents taken away, locked up in a room and forced to do this sort of scam work. Some people are doing it willingly, but there's certainly an element of of slave labor involved in these scam centers. Uh, And many of the victims of that are are Chinese nationals. But also many of the people that they are trying to scam are also Chinese nationals. Uh, And so this has been affecting people in China the number one uh, grossing film in China this year, uh, No More Bets, is a story of a young Chinese couple who get tricked into a scam centre, locked up, deprived of their liberty, and uh, ultimately are rescued. Uh, and that's set in an unnamed Southeast Asian country. Uh, and both the governments uh, of Cambodia and the regime in Myanmar have complained to China that it casts their countries in bad lights. So both of those uh, countries uh, seem to think that the shoe fits. Um, But this has been a very popular film in China, and it's meant that there's a huge public demand for action on this issue as well. So you put all that together and and tackling these scam centres has become a, a top priority for Beijing. And to get a sense of the scale, we're not talking about small, you know, million-dollar operations here. The estimated revenue of these scam centers is in the tens of billions of U.S. dollars per year. So this is at the same scale as the illicit drug industry in the region, the same scale as illicit and online gambling in the region. It's a major uh, driver of illicit profits. And, you know, the number of people involved is also huge. It's estimated there are 120,000 people involved in scam centres in Myanmar alone, maybe another 100,000 in Laos and and another 100,000 in Cambodia. So it's not a handful of citizens that China's worried about.
0: And Richard, these areas in Shan State, so by the Chinese border and further down along the Laos border, these have increasingly become sort of centres of criminality, right? It's not just the scam centres, but also a bunch of other illicit activities. So the MNDAA, this cocaine group, it says it will crack down on the scam centres, but presumably part of its motive for wanting the areas back are to access some of the money that those areas, even if not the scam centres, but more broadly, some of the money that they generate.
1: So I think the, the MNDAA are being uh, honest when they say they're going to crack down on the scam centres. Uh, they know which way the wind is blowing in China. China is a critical uh, ally of theirs. Uh, so if they do manage, as it looks like they will, to take back the cocaine zone, we can be pretty sure that the scam centres are going to be shut down. But the whole political economy and economy of that border zone in Myanmar is illicit, It's based on gambling, drugs, wildlife trafficking, human trafficking. There is no other economy, really. And so while they may crack down on scam centres... They're very unlikely to crack down on the casinos, the money laundering, uh, the other aspects of the illicit economy, and that is why they are fighting over this area. That's the asset that they lost, and that's the asset that they want back. That doesn't capture the full set of reasons for why the Three Brotherhood Alliance is fighting. The Taang have other objectives. Uh, The Arakan army have slightly different objectives as well. And all of them hope to portray their fight not as a fight over parochial concerns, but as a fight which aligns with the wishes of the majority in Myanmar. So, there's certainly a good reason for them to do that. But I think we should be a little suspicious and a little questioning of that and look at yeah, I mean, what is the illicit economy here that this control of territory will give them enormous access to economic rents over that. But, you know, it's quite striking when you look on the map uh, that you have the Salwin River that runs north to south through Shan State and, and carves off about the eastern third of that. And this area between the Salwin River and the Chinese border, further south it's the Mekong River that's the border with Laos uh, and Thailand. That area is slipping out of the grip of the Myanmar state and the regime. And this is not a short-term slippage. It's The continuation of a longer-term trend. And I think, you know, in the north you have Kokang and you have the Wa, the United Wa State Army enclave. In the south you have a second enclave of the Wa, but you have lots of other, uh, Lahu and other groups. And all of that area is based on a very thriving illicit economy. And so there is the prospect now that all of the territory east of the Salwin River is basically lost to the Myanmar state for the medium term. Uh, And it will slip into the orbit of China even more. It'll be pulled uh, even more into the orbit of the Chinese economy, uh, but without the responsibilities that come with being a part of China, right? It will have the freedom to continue to operate illegal activities while benefiting from some connectivity and linkages into China. And, you know, China has kind of tolerated this for years because China's assessment has been a lasting peace, a comprehensive peace deal in Myanmar is unlikely. Uh, Myanmar is likely to continue to be a mess. And so the best that China can do is a kind of border management approach, where it, it at least tries to keep peace on the border, even if it's not uh, a sustainable, lasting peace. And that's meant that they've tolerated all kinds of illicit economic activities, because they understand that without those, there isn't really any substitute that would keep these areas growing economically, and therefore keep people focused on economic activities rather than on conflict and, and, and other things. And this kind of uh, peace via illicit economy don't produce lasting peace. They set up modes of wealth creation and they set up uh, political economies that over the medium to long term are inimical to peace uh, and stability and human security. And so the longer this goes on, the harder it's going to be to fix.
0: So let's come then to the resistance forces, these forces that grew out of the protests against the coup and the junta's crackdown against those protests now as we talked about some of these resistance forces have got weapons training from the ethnic armed groups sometimes other support even if they're not necessarily fighting together so how are they viewing what's happening and the brotherhood alliance offensive in shan state
1: so these people's defense forces local defense forces they are a- Dozens and dozens of them across the country, some small, some much larger. Many swear political allegiance to the national unity government, uh, but many are more uh, actively cooperating with ethnic armed groups who are the groups who can really provide them with the training, the weapons, the other support that they need, the operational guidance, which it's much harder for the national unity government to do as a a political uh, body. So these forces are very significant because... You know, they are spread across the country in places where, in the Burman majority areas, in the lowland areas, in places where there hasn't been insurgency for a very long time, in places where the Myanmar military is not used to uh, dealing with insurgents. And so, you know, that has given them quite a lot of traction, I think, and they are significant forces.
0: Richard, sorry to jump in. These are also places that the Myanmar military cares about, to put it bluntly, more than they care about the peripheral areas where the ethnic armed groups hold sway.
1: I think that's true. It's much harder for them to countenance loss of control in a lowland Burma majority area than it is to accept that a part of the uplands in the mountains has slipped out of their control and they'll get it back later. So I think that's absolutely right. It hasn't stopped them from rolling out their standard brutal counterinsurgency uh, approaches in those areas. The fact that they're Burma majority, places from where many of the Myanmar military are recruited, but they've still been you know, burning down villages, uh, launching airstrikes against civilian targets, treating these areas as any other battlefield and doing an enormous amount of damage. But these groups are also changing the dynamic for the ethnic armed organizations because traditionally there's been a kind of fairly clear line The insurgents are ethnic minorities, they're up in the uplands, and they're far from the centre. And so it's been possible for Myanmar to have a civil war for decades, but for the majority of the population in the centre of the country, not really to know anything about it or or care about it. It hasn't affected the central economy, it hasn't affected people's daily lives in the centre. And that's also meant that the political demands of the ethnic minorities and of the armed groups that seek to represent them, those political demands have been easy to dismiss. But what the coup has done and what the rise of the People's Defense Forces has done is it's brought the war to the center. Nobody in Myanmar, uh, there's very few parts of the country that are unaffected by the conflict. You know, everyone is affected by this. And so it's changed the relationship to ethnic communities. No longer do they see those as the violent armed insurgents making drugs and living on the hills and making the life of Myanmar difficult. They suddenly see a common cause. And that's changed the strategic map of of Myanmar the conflict map of Myanmar. Because suddenly an ethnic armed group can have an alliance with a Burman armed group that it's providing training and weapons to and that gives it the ability to project power in different areas and it allows those groups to work together. And that's been one of the more striking things coming out of the recent fight the extent to which you know this has been uh, joint operations in different parts of the country between these people's defense forces and ethnic armed groups
0: so there have been these joint operations but there's not a centralized command right it's not like there's a country-wide opposition rebel movement under a single leadership the national unity government the nug formed of some of the legislators that were ousted by the military in early 2021. It doesn't have much say over the ethnic armed groups or even all the resistance forces.
1: Many of the ethnic armed groups have forged alliances or provided uh, assistance to post-coup people's defense forces. Now, that relationship is important for both sides. It's probably more important for the Defense forces that they have an ethnic armed group patron who is able to provide them with arms and ammunition and training and guidance on how to operate and fight against the Myanmar military because these ethnic armed groups have been doing this for decades and they have access to the weapons markets and and they know how to fight, they know the weaknesses of the Myanmar military. Whereas the PDFs, they've been doing this for two years. They were not soldiers before, they were demonstrators, these were computer programmers and doctors and nurses and people from all walks of life who rose up. And so while the NUG is supporting uh, some of these groups with guidance, with cash, in some cases with weapons, the NUG isn't as a political body, uh, best placed to provide that assistance. It's the ethnic armed groups who can do that. Now, some of those ethnic armed groups have declared themselves as allies of the national unity government and are working together with the national unity government to some extent. Others have not taken any political position on that. They're not working closely with the NUG, but they are working closely in their areas uh, with defense forces. So you have this question of, you know, who is really in charge of these defense forces? And the answer is, it depends. It depends on where they are, where their linkages are strongest, if they're in an area close to where an ethnic armed group is operating, and so on. Um, and what it means is that there isn't a national unified chain of command, either for the People's Defense Forces or for all of the anti-regime forces. These are different groups pursuing their own agendas, which are overlapping in some regards but different in some regards as well and so uh, this isn't a grand alliance right there's communication between these different groups they talk they know each other they pass messages but they don't operate as a single uh, entity. And that's been the weakness uh, of the resistance. It's why, you know, although so many people have taken up arms historically and after the coup, the Myanmar military has been able to manage this in different areas because uh, people aren't all attacking at the same time. They're not following a single strategic plan. Operation 1027 has changed that a little bit, not by creating a chain of command, but by the signaling effect, by saying, okay, we're doing this now, and look how weak the Myanmar military is, And then everyone else looks and says, right, clearly now is a good time to attack. And so you get this kind of coordination uh, by signaling rather than by having a single chain of command.
0: And Richard, since the coup, the junta has pretty much completely rejected any form of compromise with the protesters that became the resistance forces, the people's defense forces even though it's entered into sort of ceasefires and sort of, broadly speaking, sought to calm fronts with some of the ethnic armed groups. Does this latest round of fighting, do you think this changes any of the calculations in the junta, or is it just going to crack down even more?
1: I think from the statements that we've heard from the regime and what we know about their thinking, that they continue to draw a very clear line between ethnic armed groups who are their old adversaries, who they are quite willing to talk to, cut deals with, uh, have ceasefires with. And the post-coup revolutionary forces, the NUG and the and the People's Defence Forces, they declared them terrorists. They speak about crushing them. They've shown no interest in talking. I think if the regime was going to go into negotiations with anyone apart from the ethnic armed groups, I think they would talk to Ong San Suu Kyi uh, if she would talk to them. They're holding her in prison. They can talk to her any time. But I think the NUG and the and the People's Defence Forces they still see that they must defeat them but it's getting harder to foresee any kind of defeat of the defense forces. Um, likewise, it's not easy to see the defeat of the military uh, either, but certainly the idea that the military could, in, in short order, kind of uh, use its military might uh, to, to quash these defense forces. I mean, two and a half years in, uh, that doesn't look uh, remotely likely.
0: And you mentioned Aung San Suu Shi. I'm sure people know Myanmar's leader has been imprisoned since the coup, but there's no formal relationship then between Aung San Suu Kyi and the National Unity Government?
1: No, except that the NUG is part made up of uh, members of Aung San Suu Kyi's party, uh, elected parliamentarians, but not all members of her party. Uh, Some members of her party continue to eschew violence. She's, uh, as we know, a long-standing Gandhian, uh, advocate of non-violence. And she's been held incommunicado, basically. Uh, we only have had a few sentences and a few words that she's been able to share with her lawyers or, or co-defendants uh, when she's been on trial uh, in, in a military uh, court in the prison. She's, we think, generally informed about what's going on in, in broad terms, um, but hasn't been able to comment on it and certainly uh, you know, isn't part of that movement um, at this point.
0: And so you talked to Richard, you talked a bit about sort of China's policy, particularly in Shan State and in its border areas, but it also has quite troubled relations with the junta and didn't welcome the coup. I mean, how does this latest violence, you think, change what Beijing is thinking about its policy in Myanmar, the junta in Myanmar, how it can best protect its own interests? Yeah, so China was
1: very happy with its relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi, the NLD administration. Um, It felt that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi was sensitive to China's concerns. There was a good personal chemistry between her and uh, Xi Jinping. And she did not do what China was most worried about, which was uh, lean close to the West. Uh, And in fact, after the Rohingya uh, violence, she became largely estranged from the West. So this was kind of perfect for China, a leader who was incredibly popular in her own country, but who was willing to have friendly, cordial, constructive relationships with China. So China got its cake and was able to eat it as well. It got a a partner in the Myanmar government, but one that would also bring the Myanmar population that has at times had a very strong anti-Chinese sentiment would bring uh, them with it. So they were quite upset with the coup. Their view of the Myanmar military has always been that this is a Quite China skeptical force. Minong Lang particularly is known to be a China skeptic, and they have a relationship uh, of distrust with the Myanmar military. So they, they were not uh, pleased by the coup. It damaged their interests, it damaged their investments, uh, and it set off a lot of instability. Now, this latest fighting, apart from whatever it may do around the scam centers, which is of immediate concern to China, I think they won't be unhappy that along their border will be China-friendly groups now, that if the MNDAA takes control of Kokang, that's another slice of the China-Myanmar border, across which is not the Myanmar military, but a friendly uh, group to China. But where China has more concerns, I think, is around the resistance movement and the NUG. They see that as a very Western-leaning group of people, anti-Chinese in outlooks. You know, Some members of the revolution have been uh, closely uh, involved with anti-Beijing politics. And so China will not be at all happy if the fighting that began in northern Shan really boosts the prospects of resistance forces, and if it looks like the regime is really starting to crumble. I think that would be seen as a great threat to Chinese interests, and that could be the point at which they step in uh, and maybe try and bolster the regime. They don't actually want the regime to fall, and they certainly don't want the NUG to come into power. And I think they would use their leverage to try to prevent that. No signs of that uh, so far, but I think Beijing is watching what's happening. It's seeing how these events in northern Shan uh, have had this chain reaction into other areas and how that's boosted resistance forces, and I think they're certainly observing that.
0: And all this aggravates what has been a humanitarian disaster in Myanmar since the coup. I think this just this latest fighting's displaced. Hundreds of thousands of people, about two million, have been displaced since February 2021. Obviously comes on top of the hundreds of thousands of Rohingya forced into Bangladesh some years ago. Is there any sign of relief for people in Myanmar? Any way things are going to improve anytime soon? So I think
1: whatever happens, and it's unlikely that there will be a, a quick success of the revolution, I think, or certainly very unlikely that there would be a quick defeat of the revolution. But I think the events that we're seeing means uh, that Myanmar is entering a period of even more elevated violence that has uh, enormous consequences, humanitarian consequences, given the levels of displacement that you described. But there's also another sense in which There's a great humanitarian need across the country that's triggered by the coup and the subsequent economic problems. You know, so many jobs have been lost. Most foreign investment has pulled out. People can't find work. And at the same time as they're income and their spending power has declined, there's been significant inflation, cost of living crisis as well. And so that double hit of lost employment and rising costs has meant that many people who would not be normal uh, humanitarian caseloads, kind of peri-urban populations uh, and so on, are really in, in really difficult situation. And you know, humanitarian aid is not designed to respond to economic crises and deprivation of millions across a country, right? It's, it's more designed for complex emergency or, or natural disaster type situations. But uh, responding to the needs of an entire country is beyond the scope and the, and the means of the humanitarian system.
0: And politically, I mean, China, we talked about, obviously, influential will step in if things get too unstable. But Beijing is very unlikely, as you said, to mediate some sort of compromise between the junta and resistance forces, even if one were feasible. In reality, as you say, there's no sign that the regime is going to compromise in any way, at least not with the resistance forces, the national unity government. But at the same time, it's not going to prevail. It can't defeat its enemies. So politically, where's all this going? It's hard to see
1: how the country is going to exit from this crisis. It's hard to see how the regime is going to get out of the pit that it's dug for itself. Because what the regime has said is that it's going to hold elections, at some point, and that those elections will pave the way for the end of emergency rule, a return to constitutional norms, and the country moving out of crisis. Now, not only would any election held by the regime be deeply, deeply unpopular and violent itself, but there's no real sense that moving back now to the 2008 constitution and the power sharing that that mandates between the military and some elected government, that that's really feasible at this point. You know, it certainly wouldn't be the NLD this time around. They've been banned. They won't be allowed to compete. It would be some military-aligned political party. It's very hard to see how that would really get the country uh, out of uh, the crisis uh, that it's in. And so it is a very depressing prospect. And and that's why I think so many uh, people in Myanmar are pinning their hopes on the revolution being successful, because it's the only optimistic, aspirational outcome that one can really uh, wish for, however difficult that's going to be.
0: We often say that Myanmar is a neglected conflict. And listening to this, it's sort of easy to see why sort of Western capitals and others are sort of starting to give up. Myanmar sliding down the agenda, especially given everything else going on. But how would you make the case that that's a mistake?
1: I think one of the really unfortunate things about the Myanmar situation is that much of the world uh, sees this as quite a low priority partly because there are so many other crises to deal with but also because i think countries just don't really see what a feasible policy could be what what leverage they have and what they could push for and so that means that when there's a massacre or when there's a humanitarian need or when when there's you know when it's important to achieve something more limited there aren't a lot of people focused on this in different capitals and i think that's unfortunate you know Myanmar's lucky that it hasn't been dragged into the, you know, the China-US contestation in the region. It hasn't divided the Security Council. You know, all members of the Council, I think, more or less share the same diagnosis of what's going on. They may differ in what to do about it or how much they want to do about it, but it, you know, the Council isn't fundamentally divided. Diplomacy right now doesn't seem like it has much hope of achieving much, but that may not be the case in the future. And so preserving that possibility to act, preserving the level of analysis and interest that means opportunities will be spotted when they come up, and then being willing to take risks and take action at the appropriate time. And for all of that, it's really important that Myanmar doesn't drop off the international agenda. And just for budgets as well. I mean, the humanitarian needs are, are very high. Uh, it's really important that donors continue to fund support in Myanmar and don't sort of get fatigued by the hopelessness of it all and just reprogram money elsewhere.
0: Richard, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks very much. Good to be on again. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the war in Myanmar on our website, crisisgroup.org. Check out our recent piece on the escalation in northern Shan State and elsewhere. We also put out a report recently on the TNLA, the Tang National Liberation Army that we talked about. There's a lot of work on the criminal economy in Shan State and in Myanmar's east, plus, of course, lots of coverage of the coup and post-coup resistance, so check all that out. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcasts at crisisgroup.org, or write to me directly at at crisisgroup.org, if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, and I very much hope you'll join us again next time.